0: This is the third week of Advent, as I was saying, and if you're new to the church experience, Advent is a, a celebration of the coming of Christ Jesus. And through the entire month of Advent, we celebrate Christ with, with grateful adoration and glorious anticipation. Grateful adoration and glorious anticipation. That also is the theme for a sermon series of about four weeks that we are doing uh, through through Advent. In the first week of this series, we saw that the call of Advent was a call to behold Christ, the Lamb of God. And in the second week, we saw that the call of Advent was a call to feast on Christ Jesus, the bread of life. In this third week, we're going to be looking at Christ, our bridegroom. Um... This idea of Christ as our bridegroom is both strangely uh, exciting and even vaguely uh, intimidating. This this idea of Christ as our bridegroom uh, evokes uh, both a sense of thrill and perhaps a little bit a hint of fear. Uh, Thrill because we are all in the search of a perfect lover. And I I would imagine that most of us would have experienced the thrill and the excitement of of falling in love at some point of time or other in our lives. Now imagine the thrill of God Himself as our bridegroom and our lover. But along with this thrill, uh, that this idea, this biblical truth of Christ as our bridegroom, along with the thrill that this truth brings, there's also a little bit of a fear. And I'll tell you what what, what, the, fear, uh, what the fear is that I'm referring to. We live in a generation uh, that is really scared about commitment in love. Uh, uh, commitment is, is, is a little uh, uh, scary for us, you know. So whether it's the Bollywood movies we watch or whether it's the then Netflix series that that we that we watch, or even in our own culture. Um, we often see that men and women do end up liking each other, they, they hang out a lot together, they kind of grow fond of each other, they even end up sleeping together, but the moment one of them says those three words, I love you or will you marry me, that's it, all hell breaks loose. Uh, and, and, and you know, it seems, seems so strange that that people would react that way, uh, but the reality, but the, But the the, the reality today is that our generation craves love, but we fear commitment. Our generation craves love, but fears commitment. Now, if our generation is so afraid to commit to a human, imagine the kind of commitment that God, our bridegroom, will demand. And, And so there is some fear. And... And I think if you were to be honest, all of us would experience at least a little bit of that fear as well. Oh, if I follow Jesus, um, can't I enjoy my career? If I follow Jesus, do I have to give everything away? Um, And those are some fears that all of us, and in each of our lives, we have different fears in different degrees. But if we were to be very honest, we will acknowledge that those fears do exist in each of our uh, hearts. If you really think about it, we are all comfortable with God as our provider. Uh, we are comfortable with God as a helper. We are comfortable with God as our healer. Uh, we are very comfortable with God as someone who will bless us. Uh, we are comfortable with all of that. Um, we are even comfortable, we are even cool with God as our father. But God as our bridegroom, that's, that's for some of us a little too intense perhaps and we're not really sure if you're ready for for that. And so this morning I want to speak into both the thrill and the fear that that we sometimes have when we think of God as our bridegroom. That's the theme we're going to be looking at exploring this morning. Uh, Allow me to read the Bible passage from which I'm going to be speaking on this morning. This is from a book called John uh, chapter 3 verses 26 to 30. In the book of John there are two Johns. One is John the Baptist if this is your first time in a church, you may never have read the Bible before. One is John the Baptist, and the other is John the writer, disciple of Jesus, who's writing this book. So bear keep that in mind as I read this passage for us. I'm reading uh, from chapter 3, verses 26 to verse 30. They, John's disciples, uh, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man, Jesus, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, And it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. Allow me to pray. Uh, Father, we pray that even as we uh, look at your word, even as we come under your word, would you send your spirit to um, make Christ Jesus alive in our hearts, Lord. Teach us to see Christ. Teach us to come and adore him this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to draw three things for us from the passage. First, I want to talk about the unlikely bridegroom. Second, I want to look at the unlikely bride. And third, the unlikely wedding. The unlikely bridegroom, the unlikely bride, and the unlikely wedding. Let's start with the unlikely bridegroom first. Uh, in the passage that we just read, John is making a proclamation about the nature of, of the Messiah, and he's telling us the Messiah or the Savior that the world is waiting for. He's telling us that the Messiah is a bridegroom. Now, allow me to just step back and explain what's happening in the passage that we read. We just read. We read in the first uh, we saw in the first week of the series John proclaiming Jesus as the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And this is the second proclamation that Jesus is the bridegroom. And what's happening here is John began preaching repentance and was baptizing people who had repented. And then Jesus came along. We saw in the first week John introduced Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus began preaching and was baptizing people. And so the people who are following John got a little insecure about that. And they come running to John and says, this man whom you proclaim, he's baptizing more. And, and, and just at this point, John says, I am not the Messiah. I told you that. He is the Messiah. And I'm just, I, I just came to uh, call out his... Tell the world that, that he was coming. And he says the bride belongs to the bridegroom. So John is basically saying that the people are the bride. That John is just the best man. But Jesus, he is the hero of the story. Jesus, he is the bridegroom. And so in other words, John is saying the Messiah who has come... Is a bridegroom the Messiah is a bridegroom the Savior of the world is a bridegroom we need to really take a hard pause here we we need to consider this what when you think of a savior what kind of a savior do we think about now if you're an engaged citizen uh, you would probably think of a good prime minister or a good president as, 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 as a savior. Now, if you're not an engaged citizen, and if you're a typical male, uh, when you think of a savior, you're probably thinking Iron Man. Oh, I forgot, Iron Man is dead. He, he, he's no longer there around to save. Or, or if you're, if, you, know, for those of, you know, for some really religious people, we might think of, of a guru or, or a priest As the kind of a savior. Who on earth. Who on earth. Ever thinks. Of a bridegroom. As a savior. Who on earth. Ever thinks of a bridegroom. As a messiah. As a savior of the world. Jesus Christ. The bridegroom messiah. Is an atypical. Or an unlikely. Savior. We don't expect the savior of the world, to come in the form of a bridegroom. I think that demands that we really look at what John is telling us here. In him in, in, in proclaiming Jesus to be the bridegroom Messiah, what is John telling us here? John is telling us that God is giving us a lover for a savior. After all, what business Does the bridegroom have except to love his bride? And John is telling us that we need a lover for a savior. Christ, the bridegroom Messiah, has come to be our lover savior. The call of Advent is therefore a call to be loved by the greatest lover the world has ever known I want to make three quick comments about Jesus the bridegroom Messiah, the unlikely bridegroom, I want to just make three quick comments here, first the nature of the Savior that God sends reveals a lot about the nature of God think about this, if God sends a bridegroom as a Messiah we know That he is a God of love. That's the first comment. And so my simple goal this morning is is to really help open the eyes of our heart to see the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. The second comment comment I want to make is that the nature of the Savior that God sends also reveals something about the ones he came to save. So if God has sent a bridegroom messiah to save the world, to save us, what does it tell us about ourselves? If God has sent a bridegroom messiah to save us, what does it tell us about ourselves? It tells us that every one of us, we are in desperate need for love. It tells us that every one of us, we are all thirsty for love. It tells us that we need God's love to to flourish to our full God-given potential. It tells us that if we don't enjoy God's love, we will all wilt away. That's the second comment I wanted to make. The third comment I wanted to make is that if God sent a bridegroom for a savior, then you bet that this God knows and feels and understands the deepest longing for love that each of us have and it is in response to this longing that God sent the bridegroom Messiah. Deep inside every one of us had this desperate longing to be loved as as a bride. The joy of the bride is to have someone stronger come and sweep her off her feet. The joy of the bride is to have someone stronger come and love her and protect her and cherish her and, and, and nourish her and, and, and care for her. That's the joy of the bride. You know, we shouldn't just limit this this idea uh, to a mere romantic paradigm. I think, I think we can reapply this also in a a career context. Let's talk about what this means uh, in the context of our work, the businesses we run, in the context of our career. It doesn't matter how successful we are, we are all still in desperate need for love. You heard Ricky, we heard Ricky's story this morning. Let me tell you another story, something that happened in my life a couple of weeks ago. Most of you know that I work for this newspaper called the Economic Times, and, and we have this awards for corporate excellence where, where maybe about 300 of India's, you know, most successful CEOs were there. And um, one of the reporters in ET kind of overheard a conversation. I'm not divulging any confidences here because, you know, reporters tend to snoop around. They did, they overheard a conversation. And they don't, don't just overheard, overhear conversation. They go tell the world about it. So what I'm about to tell you is published, so I, I'm not violating any confidences. So at this, uh, at this awards, there were two people very well-known in India. One was Bhavish Agarwal. He's the founder of OLA, which is India's Uber, A hugely successful entrepreneur. The man he was talking to was Mukesh Ambani. Mukesh Mani is India's most successful, uh, most, most wealthy uh, businessman. And they were having this conversation, and Mukesh Mani told Bhavish Shagarwal, I've heard, I've been hearing a lot about Ola, and I've really seen how well you're scaling up. I'd love to have you come over to my home and, and, and uh, pick your brains about the way you run your business. You should have seen Bhavish Shagarwal at that moment. His, his, he was just beaming. And he went and told one of our reporters after that, 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 you know, I, I was really excited that Mukesh walked up and, and, and shared this. Bhavish is, is, is a unicorn many times over. It's probably worth 20 billion US dollars. Uh, that's, that's his valuation. I, I think my figures are outdated. It's probably worth more now. But what does it tell us about the deepest needs? We all need, we all need someone better than us, someone greater than us, to tell us that we are good. We all need someone greater than us. You know, for Bhavish is not enough if another of his peers tell him. Bhavish needed India's wealthiest businessman to come and tell him, you are good. You are good. And we all know that who was a human being appreciating us? It's good. It feels good only for a little while. And after that, our soul starts longing for a greater person to affirm us, to love us, to acknowledge us, to appreciate us. Ultimately, only the love of God, only the appreciation of God can make us feel content and satisfied. At the very core, we all have an infinite longing for love that only an infinite God can satisfy We may be afraid of commitment But the truth is We need an absolutely committed Lover, Savior, Bridegroom, Messiah To come and save us That's the first thing I wanted to draw for us from the passage The unlikely bridegroom The second thing I want to draw for us from this passage Is the unlikely bride In John chapter 3, we see Jesus being proclaimed as the bridegroom messiah. And in the very next chapter, in John chapter 4, we see Jesus behaving as the bridegroom messiah. And I'm hoping to unpack that for us. And in behaving as the bridegroom messiah, Jesus makes an unlikely choice for a bride. The passage I'm talking about is John chapter 4, immediately after the John's proclamation that Jesus is a bridegroom Messiah. It's a familiar p- passage for those of us who are followers of Jesus, but even if you've never read the Bible, I'm hoping to unpack this for you with, with some uh, fresh insight. We're going to be looking at a conversation that Jesus had with a, uh, with a Samaritan woman whom he met at the well on a hot and tiring day. It was noon. And Jesus, tired from a long journey, he goes to a well in Samaria. Uh, That's a region, and the Jews and the Samaritans, they they don't like each other. It's kind of like India and Pakistan. Uh, You know, we're not really friendly to to, to, to each other. And when he goes there, a woman comes to the well, and and Jesus, thirsty as he was, he asks the woman, Will you give me a drink? Can you give me a drink from the well? The request leads to a conversation, and the conversation has some very unexpected twists. And a thirsty Jesus ends up offering living water, life itself, eternal life to this woman. And I'm going to read parts of that conversation for us. I'm beginning from verse 15 in John chapter 4. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus told her, Please go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you have no husband. The fact is you had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. The first part of the conversation I wanted to highlight for us. It's pretty obvious that this woman is is messed up. She is desperately thirsty for love. She is craving for love but she has absolutely no idea how to remain in a relationship. And that's what Jesus is calling out. And this conversation continues somewhere until it finally reaches the climax, the end of the conversation. I'm going to read the, end, the final part of the conversation, verse 25 onwards. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus looks at the woman and he said, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. I am the Messiah. In this conversation, Jesus ends up telling the Samaritan woman that He is the Messiah she is looking for. I am the Messiah you need. Jesus told the Samaritan woman with five husbands and now living with a man who is not her husband. Think think with me on this for just a minute please what kind of a messiah do you think this woman needed what kind of a savior do you think that this woman needed it's pretty obvious from this passage that this woman needed a bridegroom messiah that's what she needed to fulfill the longing of our soul, and that is exactly how Jesus is revealing Himself to this woman. He is revealing Himself to her as the Bridegroom Messiah. How can I say that? How, based on what, the, based on the text? Nowhere does in the passage we read. Nowhere in the passage does Jesus say, "I am the Bridegroom Messiah." Jesus just says, "I am the Messiah." So how can I say that Jesus is revealing Himself as the Bridegroom Messiah? This is an incident that's happening at the well, and how can I establish a bridal theme to this conversation at the well? I'm going to help us see that. The very fact that Jesus met this woman at the well tells me that Jesus presented himself as the bridegroom messiah. Why would I say that? What's with the well? What's the significance of the well? Help me, um, just let me help us understand the significance of the well from the Old Testament. Old Testament is that part of the Bible which is written before Christ. They are not two completely different books. The entire Old Testament is talking about the Christ to come. Where did Moses meet his wife Zipporah? At the well. That's Exodus chapter 2. Where did Abraham's servant find a bride for Isaac? At the well. That's Genesis chapter 24. Where did Jacob meet his beautiful bride, Rachel? At the well. In the Old Testament times, when men needed to find a wife, they don't log on to Tinder or Shadi.com. They go to the well. That's That's where men... Found brides. Do you think, do you think it's completely irrelevant or merely coincidental that that soon after being proclaimed as the bridegroom Messiah, Jesus seeks out a woman and has a conversation with her at the well? Is that irrelevant? Is that is that mere? Coincidence, John chapter 3, he has just been proclaimed as the bridegroom Messiah. John chapter 4, Jesus starts behaving as the bridegroom Messiah. Of course, Jesus did not marry that Samaritan woman, or he did not marry any woman for that matter, because he came to marry all of us messed up people who would come to believe in him. We are his true bride. The imperfect and messed bride that he is making perfect we the church we are the bride of Christ and this Samaritan woman is indicative of the kind of bride that this bridegroom Messiah is seeking Jesus didn't come seeking the righteous he came to save the sinners He came to save the broken hearted and the lonely. He didn't come looking for a beautiful bride who has everything her life sorted. He came looking for the ugly bride whom he could make beautiful. The son of God came seeking an unlikely bride. Sinners in desperate need for grace. And so we have an unlikely bridegroom, the bridegroom Messiah, Savior of the world, Christ Jesus. And then we have an unlikely bride, all of us, messed up, sinful, unable to, to become better people by our own selves, in our own strength, as much as we desire. Whatever good intentions we have, we are just not able to become the man, men and women that we desire to be, forget the world or anybody else telling us to be. I don't think there's anyone here who says, I am all that I believe I can be. No. we all struggle. And so we have a bridegroom and we have a bride. So what happens when you have a bridegroom and a bride? A wedding happens. A wedding happens. But if you have an unlikely bridegroom, and if we have an unlikely bride, what happens? An unlikely wedding happens. And that's what I want to close with move us into the third thing I want to draw for us from the passage the unlikely wedding the unlikely wedding before I show us the unlikely nature of the wedding that I'm going to be talking about now let me first establish some minimum conditions that must be fulfilled for us to say that a wedding has indeed taken place marriage was instituted by God So let me take us back to the very institution of marriage, between man and woman, between Adam and Eve. We can see this in Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's it's a creation account. It not just talks about the creation of the world, it also talks about the purpose. To discover the meaning and purpose of our lives, Genesis is a good, very helpful place to begin with. So allow me to go back to Genesis. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. This is an account of God instituting marriage. Allow me to read that verse for us. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. They become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. So this passage tells us that for a marriage to be completed, for a marriage to be consummated, the husband and the wife must become one flesh. The phrase become one flesh in this passage is obviously referring to the joy and beauty of sexual union between husband and wife. But uh, we would be mere animals if we were to... And limit the idea of becoming one flesh to, to only sex. That's, it includes human sexuality. It includes sex between hus- sexual union between husband and wife, which is beautiful in God's eyes. Sure, this passage refers to sex, but it also refers to a deeper union between husband and wife. It refers to a deeper soul union. A deeper soul union. That's the definition. That's the biblical definition of becoming one flesh. And so we have this unlikely bridegroom, which is the bridegroom Messiah, Christ Jesus. And we have the unlikely bride, which is all of us messed up sinful people. And, and the bridegroom has to marry the bride. Where did this wedding happen? How and if this wedding is indeed happening, if this wedding is true, then this Bridegroom Messiah and the Bride asked the church, we have to become one flesh. We have to become one flesh with our Bridegroom Messiah. Where on earth and how on earth did we become one flesh with Christ Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, the Bridegroom Messiah Where do you think this unlikely wedding that I'm talking about? Where do you think that happened? The crucifixion of Christ on the cross is the wedding ceremony in which God became one flesh in Which Christ became one flesh with sinful people like you and I allow me to explain Allow me to help us really understand what I'm talking about here On the cross, when he lay on the cross, beaten, brutalized, shamed, dying, hanging on the cross, for anyone who would come to believe in him, Jesus became one flesh with us in two ways. He became one flesh with us in two ways. He became one flesh with us by his death. I'll explain what that means. On the cross, when Jesus was was hanging, dying on the cross, all of your sin and all of my sin was heaped on Christ Jesus. Christ had no sin. He, He was tempted in every way just as we are, and yet He was without sin. On the other hand, every one of us without exception, we were all full of sin. And when Christ lay hanging on the cross, as our sin, as all of our sin was heaped on on Christ, the Bible tells us in a book called 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible tells us He became sin who knew no sin. Jesus who knew no sin became sin. Not that He was sinful, but He carried our sin upon Him. It is our sin that made Christ and us one flesh when Jesus died on the cross in our place. The pure, perfect, beautiful, sinless, blemishless Son of God became sin itself. He took our sin upon Him. And in that sense, because He became sin for us, God became one flesh with sinful men when he did that and when god the father looked upon god his son who had become one flesh with the sinful pride god's anger god's wrath holy and just wrath for your sins and mine was poured upon christ and as jesus was hanging on the cross he became our substitute He became the sacrifice of atonement for our sin. And God the Father punished Him with the entire punishment that was due for us and due on us. And Christ Jesus died on the cross bearing the punishment for our sins. And so on the cross, Jesus became one flesh with us in taking on our sin upon Himself. And that's the first way... Jesus, the Son of God, the bridegroom Messiah, became one flesh with us, the bride. But when Jesus died, the entire punishment for our sins was completed. The holy wrath of God was satisfied. All of our sins were fully punished on Jesus. Justice was done, the sentence was served. Because the sentence was fully served because justice had been fully done death could no longer hold Christ down and Jesus Christ the bridegroom Messiah rose again from the dead and in rising up from the dead Jesus gave his righteousness to us in his resurrection we became as righteous as he was because we received the fullness of his righteousness And so Jesus became one flesh in the second way that I'm talking about in giving us His righteousness. His righteousness became our righteousness when God saw there was no difference whatsoever between His beloved Son Christ Jesus and all of us sinful because our sin had been forgiven because Jesus had become one flesh with us in our sin and Jesus had become one flesh with us in His righteousness. So the two ways Jesus became one flesh. Two ways this bridegroom Messiah became one flesh with his sinful bride whom he had made perfect by his sacrifice on the cross. Two ways. Jesus became one flesh with us in taking our sin upon himself in his death. And Jesus became one flesh with us by giving us his righteousness in his resurrection this is the unlikely wedding between the unlikely bridegroom Messiah and the unlikely bride this is the call of Advent to come and be loved by the greatest lover the world has ever known allow me to just show one more thing from this passage and then I'll, I'll close John the writer of this gospel He has a beautiful way of connecting the theme of of Bridegroom Messiah all through his book. In fact, I was just so blessed preparing for the sermon over the past week that beginning the night of 31st, we're going to start a four-five-week sermon series on Christ, our Bridegroom. And I'm going to be walking through the book of John and helping us see the theme or the bridal theme. in in, in the book of John. I'm really excited about that journey we're going to take. But for now, let me just show one uh, one more way John connects. We saw how John is connected, John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Jesus proclaimed as the bridegroom, Jesus behaving as the bridegroom. Let me take us back to that passage. As Jesus was being crucified, as he was about to die, just before he died, Jesus cried out, I am thirsty. We see that in John chapter 19. Later knowing that everything had now been finished, hanging on the cross, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. There is only one other occasion where Jesus ever said he was thirsty. Do you remember where that was? It was in John chapter 4 when Jesus, tired and thirsty from the journey, asked the Samaritan woman, For a drink. This unlikely wedding between the unlikely bride and bridegroom and the unlikely bride was the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. That was his wedding ceremony. The cross, the cross of Christ is where we became one flesh with Christ Jesus. The cross is why we refer to Jesus Christ as our bridegroom messiah let us pray father you know and we know that our souls need nothing less than a lover savior and lord you sent the fact that you sent a bridegroom to be a messiah the fact that you sent a lover to be our savior lord Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will bring that truth to bear in every one of our hearts. And that we will know, Lord, that there is no greater love than the love of this bridegroom Messiah. Lord, our careers, our success, Lord, our music, our fashion, our relationships, even human marriage cannot give us the love that the bridegroom Messiah can give us. So help us, Lord. Help us. Help us receive this love by the power of the name of Christ Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit present in our midst. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.